That's all the announcements that I have for you this morning. I am excited for what God is going to say to us through his word today as Andrew comes and delivers uh, the, the sermon. And we're back in our series with the life of Abraham and talking about faith. So I know God has something to say to you. Would you welcome Andrew as he comes back up this morning? Thank you, guys. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you guys today. I really am. Um, and we're just going to jump right in. Uh, so if you need another reminder, we're going to Genesis 15 today. Uh, all the verses should be on the screen as well, if uh, you prefer to read that way. And I'll just let you know that I preach from the NIV. Um, the Bibles in your chairs are, are ESV, so it might be slightly different, um, but it's the same word of God. So uh, yeah, so if you've been following with us, we've been in this series about Abraham. We've been talking about the life uh, and the faith of this guy who was lived many, many years ago uh, because Abraham's faith is the origin of our faith. Abraham is the man of faith and the Jews claim Abraham as their father because they descend from him in his lineage. But we claim Abraham as our father because of the faith that he had in God. And we get to read about that today and see what Abraham's faith has uh, to bring to bear on our faith and the faith that we have today. So uh, this is what it says in, Abraham, in, in Genesis 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now pause there really quick. We have to ask ourselves this question. Why is Abraham afraid? And the first two words of this chapter give us a hint. It says, after this, which means to understand how this chapter starts, we need to understand how chapter 14 ends. And if you remember from two weeks ago, we talked about it. Abraham uh, gets involved in a war in chapter 14. The only reason he gets involved is because his nephew gets captured as a prisoner. And so Abraham gets involved. He actually, he and his really small fighting force win this uh, war against unbelievable odds. And they bring back all of the people that were captured from this city, and they bring back all of the loot that was plundered from the city, and they bring it back to the king. And at the end of the chapter, the king says, thank you so much for all this stuff and bringing all the people back. I'll take the people, but you can keep the stuff. You can keep all of the resources that were taken. And Abram says, no thanks. I'm good because I don't want anyone to say that they made Abram rich. He said, I swore an oath before God, so I'm not going to take it. And a lot of the commentators that I was looking into about this chapter think that the reason that Abraham's afraid is because what he did was a little bit uh, of an embarrassment for the king of Sodom. So the king tried to do Abram a big favor, and Abram said, no thanks. Kind of makes the king of Sodom look bad. And also what Abram was doing was denying any sort of partnership between Abram and Abram's people and the king of Sodom and Sodom's people. So Abram kind of makes the king of Sodom look bad. And so people, the commentators think that Abram's probably afraid of some retaliatory action against him and his family. And God comes to him right off the bat and says in verse 1, Don't be afraid, Abram. I will protect you. I am your shield. And also, don't forget that I am your very great reward. And that, it kind of breaks something inside of Abram because he responds in kind of a dramatic way. So this is what it says in 15 verse 2. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me? 
since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So I think that word reward is kind of a trigger word for Abram, because if you remember in chapter 12, uh, which is actually 10 years prior to this moment, God, God comes to Abram for the first time. Abram's 75 years old, and God says, I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave your family, leave your country, leave everything you ever knew, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, but just go. And Abram does. But God says, by the way, by the way, when you get there, you're going to have a great reward. And God makes all these great promises to Abram. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation with many descendants. I'm going to give them a wonderful land to live in. And by the way, through you, a a person will come who is going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And so Abram is, is willing to leave all of the stuff that he knew behind because he's got this idea of a reward bouncing around in his head. And we fast forward 10 years and God kind of reminds him about that reward. And Abram's like, I've been waiting for 10 years and I don't have a son. I'm getting old. I don't know if you know this. 85, getting up there. And so he's like, what can you give me? None of these promises can come true unless I have a son to, to, to work through. And so God responds. God resp- Thankfully, we, have, we serve a merciful God. God responds mercifully to Abram. This is what it says in verse 4. The word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. Don't worry about Eliezer. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. So God clarifies the promise. He says, just in case you were wondering, you are going to have a son. And that son I will bless and make a, into a great nation with many, many descendants. And he, he, not, he, stop, he doesn't stop there. He brings him outside at night. He says, look up. He brings him outside and he says, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And this is a pivotal moment in the life of Abraham right now. Because he's been waiting 10 years and hasn't seen anything that looks like this promise, this reward coming to fulfillment. He just fought a war and he's no better off for it because he turned down all the stuff. And God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you a son and I'm going to give you many descendants. And in verse 6, Abram responds, in faith. It says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So Abram decides, it's an active decision to place his faith in God and say, I believe that you are going to keep the promises that you made to me. I believe that you are going to do everything that you said you would do. And I think that this is a powerful moment for us because we, in, in some ways, we experience the same thing that Abram did. He went through his life and he was living through a long period of time where there was a lot of dissonance. He got these promises from God and he, he started to form expectations. And then he started to live and have experiences and he saw that there was a distance between those two things. Dissonance comes in our life when there is a gap between our experience and our expectations of God. And somehow, after 10 years, Abram is able to find the faith to lean into this relationship with God instead of to to throw in the towel and say, I'm going back home. 
I am tired of this. I'm going back home. And the question is, the question that we should be asking is how? Because some of us are going through some serious stuff. Some of us are going through things where we are not sure if we can hold on to our faith. And so if we can understand what is happening and how Abram is able to do this, it can help us in our faith today. And I think at this point, there, um, there's another scripture that comes into play that can be very helpful in understanding what's going on in this chapter. And that is in the book of Hebrews. So the verses are on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But in Hebrews chapter six, the writer, by the way, a big fan of Abram. The writer of Hebrews talks a lot about Abraham in their book. But in chapter six, in, in talking about this chapter and talking about what transpires in this chapter in Genesis, the writer says this, starting in verse 17. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what is promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. What I, the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that God wants his people to clearly understand that they have something unmovable that they can drop the anchor of their life down into, that they can put their faith in that will not change. And we'll see the oath that Hebrews talks about comes in this chapter, and we'll see that come to pass. But what God sees in this question, or in this response from Abraham in verse 2 and following, is that Abram's anchor had popped loose. Abram's been following God and he had his anchor stuck in there and, and it's been going and going and, you know, it's just, his patience was starting to wear thin and the anchor popped loose and God recognized that and he took him outside. He's, he's, he said, count the stars and he clarified the promise. But he goes even farther. The, the, the writer of Hebrews says he confirms it with an oath. And so we see that come into play in the following verses. This is what it says in Genesis 15, starting in verse seven. God says to him, uh, to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. So he's like, and by the, another thing, don't forget the land. I'm gonna give you a land as well as a people. And I love this verse. This verse I, sometimes we're tempted to think that the characters in the Bible are uh, like superheroes a little bit, especially like the big ones. Uh, but I love the verse eight because it shows that Abram is just a guy. He's a guy like, like me, uh, and he has questions like I have questions. And so in verse eight, remember from the position, from the stance of believing in God, from having faith that God is gonna keep his word, in verse eight, Abram says, "'O sovereign Lord, how can I know "'that I will gain possession of it? "'How can I know?' That's such a relatable question, isn't it? That even though we have faith that God is going to do something, we ask the question, how can I know? And I used to be afraid of this question a little bit because it feels a little bit like talking back to your parents. And I was raised in a household where that was a very scary thing to do. Uh, and so a lot of times in my faith, I, I shy away from asking this question. But if you look in scripture, whenever people ask God this question, 
or some, some kind of variation of it, God responds well to those people. You can think of the person in Mark chapter 9 who uh, hears that Jesus is coming nearby and he runs to see him because his son is on his deathbed. His son is dying. And he asks Jesus to heal him and he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And God, and Jesus, heals his son. So when, when we ask God this question, how can I know that we recognize that our faith, we have faith, but it's not fully, fully assured God responds well to that. That th these are kind of the questions when we find our anchor coming loose a little bit. And that's what happens. Two times in this chapter, Abram's anchor comes loose. And so God, once again, being merciful, responds to Abram well. In verse 9, it says, The Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. God says, I hear you, Abram. Bring me some animals. Okay. Abram's like, no problem. Verse 10, Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Now, pause there because... Something just happened, right? God said, bring me some animals. And Abram's like, here you go. And then he just starts killing them. He starts ripping them into pieces and laying them out in rows. And the question is, what is going on? Like, how did, why is Abram doing this without any instruction from God? The thing is, it, it makes no sense to us today, but it made perfect sense to Abram in that day because that list of animals was a very specific list. Those were the animals that were required to cut a covenant. You guys ever heard that phrase before, cutting a covenant? Abram immediately recognized that those were the animals that were needed to make a covenant. And a covenant is how you would make an oath, an unbreakable oath with another person. And it's very different for us today, um, but the, the reason that these covenant uh, rituals, it's kind of a ceremony, were so important was because people wanted assurances uh, when they made promises to each other. And so today, when we make promises to each other, most often we sign it, and that is our confirmation that we will keep our word. We sign the, sign the contract, we sign the paper, whatever it is, and we say, if I don't keep the terms of this contract, of this agreement, may there be consequences that will come on me as a result. Because I put my name, if I don't put my name on it, you can get off scot-free. Once your name is on that contract, you're responsible for consequences if you break the terms. This culture in the book of Genesis is a, is a, is a less literate, more oral and storytelling culture. And so when the way that they would sign their oath is that they would almost act out the consequence of breaking their word. By, doing so, by, by taking animals, by slaying them, by cutting them into pieces and laying them out in two rows with an aisle in between, what they would do is, is they would walk through they would walk through these pieces of animal carcass, and by doing so, they're, they're acting out. They're saying, if I don't keep my word, may it be to me like these animals. If I break my promise to you, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, may my body be torn in two, may my body be laid out for the, um, as a consequence for me breaking the covenant. And so Abram recognizes what's going on. And, and, and most often, I'll share this as well. Most often when this happened, this happened between unequal parties. Today, the, the most frequent covenant that we...
recognize or understand or experience is the covenant of marriage, which is between two equals. But in this story, in this time, the covenants that took place were between unequal parties. Most often, and this happened, a lot, this happened kind of frequently in, in this time, it was between a king and a vassal or like a lesser king. So when a king would go in and conquer an area or something would happen, they would make these agreements with each other. And the lesser king would set up the the, the vassal would set up the, the sacrifice, the covenant, and would walk through first to say to the greater king, I will pay my taxes, I will supply you with, you know, whatever. And the king, the greater king, could choose at that moment to walk through or to not walk through. The greater king could say, and I will promise to protect you if somebody comes in and, and, and tries to, you know, ransack your town. I will come with the force of my army and come and protect you. So there was this mutual kind of promise making there. So both parties would walk through. So this is what Abram expects to happen. He expects him to create the sacrifice for God to show up, for him to walk through, and then hope, fingers crossed, that God would walk through as well. And then Abram's question, how can I know, would be laid to rest because God walked through the pieces. And so we see what happens afterwards. We read verse 10, he brought all these animals together and they did not cut the birds in half. Verse 11, the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age in the fourth generation. Your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, as he's creating the sacrifice and, and guarding the sacrifice, now, some, God doesn't show up right away. And I think that there's a, there's a lesson in there. We could probably preach a whole message just on that verse where God, Abram is just chasing these birds away that are trying to eat and, and ruin the integrity of his sacrifice, that God doesn't show up right away. And sometimes uh, we have a timeline for God that he never agreed to. And sometimes our anchor comes loose because we expected God to show up in a timeline that he, didn't, he never promised, that he never had. But regardless of that, something happens. In verse, in verse 12, uh, the, the sun is setting and he falls into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness comes over him. To tell you the truth, I don't fully understand what's going on here. And I was looking in commentaries and the commentaries conveniently would write from verse 11 and kind of gloss over these verses here and go into the next stuff. That's how you know nobody really knows what's going on here. The smartest people kind of just skip over it. But what, what, we can, what I can say about it is that uh, something supernatural happens here. The, the deep sleep that Abram falls into is the same deep sleep that Adam falls into in the Garden of Eden when God causes this to happen to him so he takes a rib from him and creates Eve. And in addition to the, the deep sleep, there's this darkness, thick, dreadful darkness that comes over him, uh, which at a time where darkness would not normally occur, scripture says, as the sun was setting. So as the sun is still in the sky, darkness falls over. And um, out of that darkness, God says dark things. And one of the commentaries I read, which I think is kind of nice, uh, 
kind of, kind of explains it like a sensory deprivation tank. Have you guys ever heard of that before? Where you, you kind of go inside this little tank and you kind of float in water and it's designed to totally shut off all of the physical senses by which we use to take in information about the world. Our sense of smell, sight, touch, uh, all that stuff. They explained it that this is kind of uh, a sensory deprivation tank that everything in his physical world, Abram's physical world, kind of just turned down to zero so that God could speak something spiritual to him. And in that speech, it, when God speaks, he gives him a timeline of the promise for land, which would have surprised Abraham. God says, it's, it's not going to be for another 400 years that your people are going to get this land. You're not going to be able to own it. As a matter of fact, Abraham never owns a piece of land in his life except for the small plot of ground that he and his wife are buried in. All of the land was going to go to his descendants. And so Abram wakes up from this sleep and uh, God, God finally shows up. But before I, I just, I skipped over something really quick. Just for reference, so you can see how these promises play out. From the time that Abram first receives the promises of God, when he's in Ur of the Chaldeans in chapter 12, 25 years pass before he gets a son. 25 years pass before uh, the first promise is able to be fulfilled. The second promise doesn't get fulfilled of land for 430 years. So it's about 25 years from, from uh, the first time, and then now God says 400 years. And the third promise, that promise of somebody who is going to bless all peoples of the earth, takes 1,800 years to come about. And so sometimes God's working with a timeline that far uh, exceeds our own natural lives, and that's okay. God is, like we sang this morning, God is always working. Even when we don't see it, even when we won't see it because we've uh, passed on from this life, God is working. But the story goes on. In verse 17, when the sun had set, so Abram wakes up and, and the time passes and the sun had set and darkness had fallen, natural darkness had fallen on the land. It says a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared. Now, these are the, this, this smoking fire pot and blazing torch, kind of difficult words in Hebrew to come to a good English translation of. Uh, basically, the word for smoke and the word for blaze are present in there. And the significant thing about those words is they always show up when God personally, physically shows up in the world. They don't, they, they're, they're not... They don't come around when God sends an, uh, you know, an angel or come around in a vision or when he sends a messenger. They, the, these two things, smoke and blaze, they show up when God personally visits the earth. We see it when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the law. There's, there's smoke and blaze there. We see it when the Hebrew people are wandering around in the desert when they come out of Egypt, like God prophesied, they, they follow around a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. And so this is God's personal presence. So God, personal, he doesn't send a messenger. He personally shows up to Abraham. And what happens? Abraham's, Abraham's ready to, to get up and walk through. 
And God's hopefully going to walk through as well. But what happens? The end of verse 17. The smoking fire pot and blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. I got to tell you, it's, it's quite possible that this is the most important verse in the Old Testament. Uh, the most significant verse, uh, I would say definitely in the book of Genesis, maybe in the whole Old Testament. And the reason why is because this is the gospel. God passed between the pieces. You have to understand that by God going first, He's not just saying, hey, if I don't keep my promises to you, Abram, one, uh, 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 descendants, a land, and blessing all of the peoples of the world, if I don't keep my promises to you, may it be like to me as these pieces that you've set up. But by God going through first, he's telling Abraham, if you don't keep your end of the bargain, if you can't uphold the terms of this covenant, may it be to me like these pieces. God in that moment walking through says, I will take the curse of both ends of this covenant. I will uphold both ends of this covenant. And he makes, he makes that, he swears the oath to Abram in that day. He says, I'm going to give you something unshakable to put your anchor into. I'm going to give you the gospel, something that's not going to change. And 1,800 years later, with a single act with a single act, God does something amazing. With a single act, he fulfills his third promise to Abraham. And with a single act, he takes the curse of that covenant. And with that single act, he establishes a new and better covenant. This is what it says in Matthew chapter 15. Verses 33 and 34, it says, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 1,800 years later, from Genesis 15, a thick and dreadful darkness would fall over the land once again. 1,800 years later, in that moment, God paid the curse of a broken covenant because we, not him, we broke it. In that moment, God's perfectly unified existence was torn in two as Jesus said, why have you forsaken me, God? Why have you turned your back on me? In that moment, God's body was slain. His blood was shed. It was to his body like the animals from 1,800 years earlier. And in that moment, God ripped something else into the curtain in the temple of the Holy of Holies. He said, I'm going to establish a new covenant that's not going to fade, that's not going to pass away. A covenant that is going to be truly unmovable and unbreakable. The old covenant, what the old covenant could not do, the new covenant does for people who put their faith into it, that drop their anchor into that new covenant. And as I invite the worship team back up, I just want to close by sharing with you a little bit about that new covenant. Jesus Christ died on a cross. He suffered and he died to pay the 
curse of the old covenant to pay the penalty for our sin, the thing that we did that we could not uphold that old covenant. And he established something new. And the terms, the promises that God gives in that new covenant are different. He doesn't give us the same promises as he gives Abraham. He gives us uh, a promise of eternal presence and a promise of eternal life. In this new covenant that Jesus establishes, he says, I will always be with you. I will never forsake you. And you will live forever. Praise God. Somebody say amen. 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 And I, the, the thing that I love about this new covenant is that there's no waiting involved. Abram had to wait a long time. Abram didn't even get to see all of the stuff that he was promised. But for us, this new covenant, there's no waiting involved. And some of us have got the wrong idea about eternal life. Some of us have believed in Jesus for our salvation. Scripture says, if you want to be saved, if you want a part of this new covenant, you have to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And you'll receive the gift of eternal life. Some of us got the wrong idea about that eternal life, that it's something that we get to eventually, that we have to wait for once we die. That's not what eternal life is. Jesus defines it in John chapter 17, actually. As Jesus is ending the near, nearing the end of his natural life on earth, he prays to God something uh, in, in John chapter 17, and he says this, this is eternal life that those you have given to me may know you, God, and that they may know Jesus Christ, the one that you have sent. Eternal life doesn't start when we die. Eternal life starts the moment that we are born again. When you are born again, you are born again into new spiritual life that will never end. And if you followed along in our devotional this week, The author of the first week devotional says something profound about a person who is nearing the end of their life. And he says, this isn't, well, I'll just read it for you because I'll I'll probably butcher it. Hayward's words ring resolutely true in light of the gospel. For followers of Jesus, death is not the end or even the beginning of the end. It is simply the end of the beginning and the beginning of eternity. When you put your faith in Christ and you are raised again to new life, that's the beginning right then, right there. You get to, and what, is it, what does that eternal life consist of? Jesus says in John 17, it's knowing God, not knowing about God, not knowing of God, but knowing him personally, intimately, and knowing Jesus Christ, the one that he sent. And some of you here have your anchor firm in that. Some of you feel like your anchor keeps popping loose. And some of you know deep down that your anchor is suspended in the water or, or just laid down in the, in the bottom somewhere else. But what I think God is saying to us this morning, to all of us, is that faith that is anchored to Jesus Christ will never be ever be moved. 
faith that is anchored to Jesus Christ will never, ever be moved. And some of you have your anchor firm in Jesus, and I celebrate with you. You, you know Jesus, you, are, you two are close and you're getting closer every day. But like I said, some of you may be here and you thought your anchor was in that, but you find that it keeps coming loose. You see this dissonance in your life, a distance between your experience and your expectation. If that's you, this morning is an invitation for you to re-examine your expectations. It could be that your expectations of God were off. They weren't based on something that he said or the words of scripture. And I would invite you to reflect on the cross. That's what we're doing in this time of Lent for all of us. But especially if you feel like your anchor keeps coming loose and you're trying to figure out how to get it back down into, into something that's never gonna change. I invite you to reflect on the cross, to reckon with what was accomplished there, with what Jesus went through. And I would invite you to pray that the Holy Spirit would guide your anchor down. That's another part of the new covenant. I even mentioned he sends somebody to help us, a helper to be with us that would guide us into all things. You can pray that the Holy Spirit would guide your anchor down into that promise, into that covenant that doesn't change so that your life, everything in your life would revolve around him. And there are people here who, whose anchor is not there, is not in the promise. Maybe it's floating in the water, maybe it's laying on the sand. Either way, the dissonance of life, the storms, the currents of the water are gonna throw you around. You are at their mercy and you will be disappointed in your life until you find that anchor, until you find that promise to anchor into. And to experience that rebirth, if you want that, if you're tired of being tossed around by the currents and the circumstances in your life, if you want that, scripture says that you need to believe. Scripture also says that you need to die to your old self. If you wanna be reborn, you need to die first our old self, our sinful self, the old covenant self that, that couldn't do it, goes on the cross with Jesus. And what comes out of the tomb is new, is new and it's everlasting. And that new life, scripture says, is filled with love and joy and peace and patience and all kinds of things, it says in Galatians chapter five. If you want that, you can have it. Jesus is offering that to all of us and he'll help us get there. And so if you are here and that's, that's something that you wanna pursue, if you, if you are here and you really want to get your anchor down into that, you wanna live an unshakable life, a life filled with purpose, a life filled with love and peace, I would invite you, uh, as, as we close in worship, I'm just gonna be up here. I would invite you to come. I would, I beg you to come and, and talk with me um, so that I can celebrate with you. I can pray over you uh, and help you figure that out. That this is a family and we help each other out. 
And if you're here, and I'll just, I'll just close with this. If you're here and you, you, your anchor is secure, as we sing this closing song, would you sing these words as a prayer for people who don't have their anchor secure, for people who, who haven't found that firm and unchanging uh, place to anchor their souls to? Would you sing? God has been moving in worship this morning. I am so grateful. Would you sing, uh, continuing that energy, filling this room with worship that it has never heard before. And I would encourage you, this is a great, this is a great step. If you're looking for a practical step to, to get that anchor nice and sturdy, take, a, take part in this Lent devotional. Join a group. There's actually one meeting right after service in the fellowship hall in the upstairs room. Gaze upon the cross. Let the Holy Spirit guide you to where that anchor should end up. 